Greetings, gang. It's uh, Chapo coming at you for Thursday, June 23rd. I have uh, returned from my uh, Paris sojourn. And uh, on today's hour, I will be relaying all of my witty and trenchant observations on some of the differences between American and French culture, starting with, hey, ice water, look into it, fellas. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Today, we're joined by author and journalist Jefferson Morley to talk about his uh, new book, Scorpion's Dance, about uh, the CIA, Richard Nixon, and Watergate. Jefferson, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Will. So, Jefferson, let's kick it off like this. Uh, this June marks the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a well-told story in American history. You've got all the president's men. And I think most Americans know... I, I, like the, the, a, a broad story about, you know, the journalists, the burglary, the plumbers, a rogue president. But uh, your book suggests that 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 sort of um, stock narrative uh, is a little bit more complicated. And your book, what your book suggests is there are a lot more questions about Watergate, particularly as it relates to the relationship between two dicks. Dick Nixon and Dick Helms, the head of the CIA. So, like, just to start there, like, just in terms of like the the general, like, all the president's men style understanding of Watergate, what do you think is is lacking from that narrative? And like, what did your books seek to find out? Well, what's completely lacking from that narrative is the hidden hand of the CIA. And there's this striking scene right at the beginning of all the president's men when Jim McCord is arraigned in court after the burglars are caught on June seventeenth, nineteen seventy two. And the judge asks him his employment, and he says, CIA. And there's the 28-year-old Bob Woodward in the front row. He says, holy shit, runs back to the Post newsroom. I later got the telephone log calls from the CIA call center. Somebody calls the CIA like 30 minutes later. It was probably Woodward. And, and asks a question, who is this guy who works for the CIA? Great story, great start, very exciting. That's the last mention of the CIA in the book, All the President's Men. I, the, it, there might be one or two passing references. So what the story that Woodward and Bernstein didn't get was just how deeply linked the burglars were to the agency. Jim McCord and Howard Hunt were working for the CIA at the time. The CIA denied that to the press and the press believed it. But in fact, they were working and reporting to Dick Helms. So the, the hidden hand of the CIA is much greater. The relationship between Helms and Nixon went back much farther. The idea that the CIA was kind of the innocent bystander to a lawless president, that was just a cover story. Well, let's get into this uh, relationship. Like I said, like it's it, the relationship between Richard Nixon and his CIA director, Richard Helms, is really a lot of like the meat of this book. Uh, Richard Nixon as a personality, as a character, has been psychoanalyzed at depth. I mean, he's been portrayed on film and in fiction many times, but a lot less is known about Richard Helms. So like, if you had to describe, like, where did Richard Helms come from? How did he get involved in the agency? And how would you generally describe him as a, uh, as a director of intelligence and a sort of as a, a person? How would you describe his character? I mean, Dick Helms was a consummate intelligence professional and covert operator. He didn't get the, the, the name, the man who kept the secrets for no reason. He kept a lot of very nasty secrets for the U.S. government, and that's why he was prized. Served almost seven years as CIA director, one of the longest tenures of any CIA director. So he's remarkable in that, in that regard. And uh, the only CIA director ever convicted of a crime. He, he's distinguished in that way, too. Helms was, uh, came from a very polished family on Philadelphia's main line. His father was an 
executive in the Aluminum Company of America. His grandfather was the first head of the Bank of International Settlements. So he comes from this family almost of like international capital and journalism. And then during World War II, moves into secret intelligence work, falls in love with the dirty trick side of the house and becomes, you know, joins the CIA on day one in 1947. The interesting thing about Helms is, you know, he was this very polished East Coast guy, bit of a snob and all that, but he intuited how to get along with a guy like Nixon, who was very insecure from the West Coast, envious, resentful, wanted to be part of the Eastern establishment at the same time that he wanted to destroy it. Um, and Helms really manages him as the as, during Nixon's first term. I, I found these letters, you know, Helms write these little notes, you know, Mr. President, you're, you're such a great statesman. I couldn't have, you know, your speech last night was so admirable. And he really flattered him. And so they worked together. And while they were culturally very different, politically, they were hand in glove. Helms was a hawk on Vietnam, despite what, the, what his own staff was telling him, which was that the war was hopeless and couldn't be won. Helms supported spreading, expanding the war into Cambodia. And, 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 and this is important in terms of the context of Watergate. Helms supported Nixon's efforts to expand domestic surveillance, including the use of political burglary, black bag jobs. Nixon sought the legal authority to do this, and Helms backed him up. Ironically, it was J. Edgar Hoover, the reactionary head of the FBI, who was the one who had civil liberties concerns and, and, and didn't want to do it. So Helms, in some regards, was more hardline than J. Edgar Hoover when it came to advancing Nixon's agenda. None of this story is included in, you know, kind of the Watergate mythology of all the president's men, that the CIA was was the Watergate and Navy. Um, and like in, in reading uh, like a, just sort of the background and biography of Richard Helms, I mean, you, you, you touched on it a second ago, but like very like from a blue blood, like Philadelphia family, he seemed to embody the type of person that Richard Nixon despised and resented his entire career. So like, how, like, how did Richard Helms sort of ingratiated, he sort of sensed that and ingratiated himself to him by kind of flattering his, his need to be accepted by this very, like, upper crust, a power elite? Yeah, because, you know, Nixon often, you hear him mumbling on, on, on the tapes, oh, maybe we should get rid of Helms, you know, like, cult instinctively, that's what he wanted to do. But Helms hung in there and managed to do this. And I think it was his hawkish policies that endeared him. And one other thing, let's not forget. It was Helms who provided Nixon with the burglars. And this is why I think one of the more significant things I point out in the book. A year before Watergate, Bob Haldeman, has a, the chief of staff, Nixon's chief of staff, has a conversation with Nixon. Nixon's in a rage because Daniel Ellsberg has just leaked the Pentagon Papers to the, to the New York Times. And he wants somebody to go after him the way he went after Alger Hiss. And he's saying, this guy could do it. That guy could do it. And Haldeman says, well, there's this guy, this guy Hunt. And Helms says he's quiet, ruthless, and careful. He's on our side. He knows the fight. It was Helms who recommended Hunt to Nixon personally. And then the next day, Howard Hunt is on the White House staff. So that's how intimate the connection was between the CIA and the burglars. And from Helms's point of view, understand, this is perfectly natural. The president comes to you and says he needs something done. You do it. You don't ask questions. That was Dick Helms's credo. You go with the president or you get out of government. So when Nixon wants a burglar or a dirty trickster, Helms is ready. Take my old friend Howard Hunt. 
so I want to get to like uh, the the relationship to the between the CIA and Nixon. But like the interesting thing here is that uh, in terms of the burglars, is Watergate was the last of a series of political burglaries yeah. that the plumbers did. Could you describe like what were the previous operations that these guys were used for as part of Nixon's like uh, plumbers and dirty tricks team? Yeah, I uncovered part of the story. It's it, it, it's still you know shrouded in official secrecy. But yeah, Watergate wasn't the only break-in that the, that the burglars did. Howard Hunt had gone to Miami in, in the spring of 1971 and started recruiting his Cuban friends for national security missions. And that was even before Ellsberg. So this was something that was on the table and they wanted to get done. They wanted somebody with the capacity to go after the president's enemies. And so these national security burglars, um, one of them was Frank Sturgis, a kind of a heavy muscle guy from, from Miami, a, a, quite an ominous character, actually, a killer. And um, uh, and Sturgis told the FBI that he knew of seven different operations against Chilean government offices in Washington and D.C. At that time, the Chilean government was headed by Salvador Allende. The CIA was seeking to undermine it. So it made sense that they would be trying to do these break in jobs and get and, and get that. And so that's a side. We know that happened. We don't know. You know, what did they get out of it? The Chileans never wanted it investigated because they didn't trust the Americans. But we see that there was a political burglary team operating in 1971 and 72, jointly sponsored by the White House and the CIA. And we know that because the Cubans in the, uh, among the burglars said that we were recruited for a joint White House CIA operation um, to do national security missions. And that's what they that's what they did. These were a wide variety of things. Go after the president's enemies you know, go after the United States enemies in Latin America. You know, it was all on a spectrum. You know, they wanted to get it done. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the uh, the burglars and not just their connection to the agency, but their connection to all of the kind of Cuban counter-revolutionary activities going on in like Florida and Louisiana at the time that is also tied into the Kennedy assassination? Yeah. So so now now we're getting now we're getting to the deep backstory. And that requires understanding who Howard Hunt was. Howard Hunt was a, a, a very talented writer, uh, came from upstate New York, went to Brown University, wanted to be a writer. Um, he even got a Guggenheim, much to the end. What, what, kind of, what, what kind of writer was he? Was he a novelist? Or? A novelist, yeah. He, yeah. He, he got a Guggenheim and like Truman Capote and Gore Vidal got turned down that year. You know, they were very <laughs> envious. They were very envious of Howard Hunt. And he wasn't a bad writer. He was a prolific writer and he, he wrote two books a, a year for practically the rest of his life. The guy couldn't, he couldn't stop writing in a lot of ways, but anyway, smart guy joins the CIA creative cold warrior. He, he, one of the first things he does is he secures the rights to George Orwell's animal farm and helps produce the cartoon version of it, tweaking the message to be a little more anti-communist than Orwell had it. He, he played a leading role at, at the Bay of Pigs, which of course ended disastrously. So when, when Hunt is hired by the White House, he brings the guys who he's been working with the longest. The first one was, was a guy named Bernard Barker, Macho Barker, had been his deputy during the Bay of Pigs operation. Hunt was the chief of, polit of the political wing of the attempted invasion, and Barker was his deputy. Hunt was also an assassination specialist. Hunt was going to assassinate Fidel Castro in March 1961 as a prelude to the investigation. Cuban security broke that up and a lot of his men went to jail. So, you know, 
Howard Hunt had these connections uh, there. Frank Sturgis was kind of a soldier of fortune, also involved in plots to kill assassination. Hunt brought him brought him along as well. And then another guy, um, Muscalito, Rolando Martinez, who was a boat captain, um, who, who led, you know, CIA infiltration and terrorism missions, a couple of hundred of them, in fact, over the years. So these guys were the agency's heavy hitters in the anti-Castro operation. You know, Gordon, <laughs> Gordon Liddy was very impressed after he came back from his first meeting with Howard Hunt when they went to recruit these guys in Miami. And, and Liddy wrote this in his book. He said Hunt later told him that of the men they interviewed, they were responsible for 22 murders, including two men hung from a beam in a garage. That's an exact quote from Gordon Liddy. So this, the Watergate burglars, you know, that's the other thing about the sort of the sugar-coated version. You know, this was a nasty bunch of guys. I, I want to just go back real quick. Uh, you talk about um, Howard Hunt's novels. You said he's actually a, a pretty good writer. What are his novels like? I mean, do, do any themes emerge in them that are relevant to the story? Oh, absolutely. Um, one one theme that emerges is, I mean, Hunt wrote a lot of different novels. Um, he, at the behest of Helms, he started writing spy novels in 1960. Well, he in 1965, 1964, Ian Fleming had just died. And so Helms thought, well, maybe Hunt can become the Ian Fleming of the CIA. So he gives Hunt a year off to go write these novels and he cranks them out and they involve the, the American 007 was a character named Peter Ward. He was not exactly as attractive as James Bond, but Hunt tried very hard. And in these, in these, in these, in these books, Peter Ward takes his orders from a, a magnificently impressive deputy director named Avery Thorne. And as you read the books, the, the, the Avery Thorne character recurs. It's Dick Helms. And he, I mean, it's like, it's hero worship. He really, Helms was his hero in life because he was such an accomplished, masterful spy. Howard Hunt idolized Dick Helms in his books. That was an interesting insight into his character. He also wrote a book uh, in the 70s where the bad guy is a thinly veiled version of Teddy Kennedy, who is also a Satan worshiper. Oh, really? I never read that one. I mean, the guy wrote 70 books in his life, so it was pretty hard to read them all. That would that uh, would be good though, like an Amer- an American early CIA version of James Bond, where he suavely walks up to the bar and orders a tall glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of those early CIA agents who's like a teetotaling Catholic for some reason. Uh, uh, Peter Ward was he was he was suave in a very outdated '60s way. He he, he wore like those golf shoes and um, smoked a pipe. Uh, Howard Hunt's <laughs> pipe and and and, uh, and his his heroic alter ego Peter Ward also smoked the pipe. Uh, yes, there's a lot of loving descriptions of um, uh, different uh, cuisines in, in, across Asia. Um, uh, some fetching females uh, who usually turn out to be treacherous communists. Uh, in fact, invariably turn out to be treacherous communists. Just imagining uh, Peter. Peter, Peter Ward chatting up a uh, sexy Russian defector. My na- my name is Peter Ward. That name again, Peter Ward. Just one more time, Ward, Peter. <laughs> okay, so Jefferson, uh, 
So, like, we get this picture of the, the, the Watergate burglars, the plumbers, right? I mean, yeah. like, a hand, hand like, a, re- recruited by Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, who were, you know, and Howard Hunt was personally recommended to the Nixon White House by the director of the CIA. And they were, you know, uh, you know, sort of culled from a group of some of the most uh, frightening murderers and, you know, wet works people on the planet. So, but then we get into, like, the Watergate burglary itself. This idea, and then like the, the sort of popular perception is this idea of like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And these guys have been doing break ins and assassinations for years on a global stage. So, like, the thing about the duct tape on the door, like, what is your opinion on this idea that like, th- that, that like they screwed it up on purpose? And like, what I'm getting at here is like a question that is ra- like that, that sort of was raised yeah. in my mind by yeah. the book that you have to consider is who was Howard Hunt and the burglars working for? Were they working for Nixon or were they working for Richard Helms? I mean, they were working for both. They, those guys didn't make a distinction in their mind. They were working for the president who was, you know, directed and helped and assisted by the CIA. Um, you know, the, the question of how the burglars screwed up, you know, I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer, which is, you know, Jim Hogan, who, who wrote the original kind of Watergate breakthrough book in 1984, which pointed out all the, the failings of the all, all the president's men narrative. And my book is really like son of secret agenda. I, I take Hogan's leads and I, and, and I run them down, you know, and, and, and report the most significant ones and put them in context. You know, Jim says that the burglars were, they intentionally botched it to embarrass the Nixon administration. You know, I doubt that for a couple of reasons. First, Helms put a lot of effort into constructing a good relationship with Nixon. Helms and Nixon speak on the phone on June 16th, 1972, and have a friendly conversation. These two men are partners in power. Helms did not have it out for Nixon, I don't think. Did McCord blow it? Why did he put the tape on there? That's very suspicious. On the other hand, McCord got caught, and he did not fake the panic that he felt when he was arrested. He told his wife, go home and burn every piece of paper that says CIA on it. You know, he was in a true panic. Hunt was in a true panic. Those guys, I don't believe, faked that. So I'm left with the possibility that, you know what? These guys were cocky, macho, overconfident boobs. And that's definitely true of Howard Hunt. That guy made a lot of tradecraft mistakes in his in his career. And other people in the CIA resented him for it because he was incompetent. So I think with, you know, the necessary caveat, it's the CIA, you never know. I don't think the burglary was intentionally botched. Yeah, you you kind of have the problem that you have with a lot of Cold War era CIA stuff where, I mean, it's already difficult enough to get into anyone's head, especially with something from 50, 60 years ago. But with these guys in particular, because there's such a weird mix of incompetence and then sometimes hyper-competence, and then sometimes self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. You don't know whether you're getting the guys who oversaw the execution of Patrice Lumumba or the guys who tried to kill Castro with Acme products 50 times. You know, and, 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 and it's both. You know, one thing about the CIA and, and the politics of assassination, which I'll get into because that's the other big part of the Watergate story that didn't come out. You know, they try anything. So, you know, to me and you, it looks stupid. But you know what? Some of these stupid things worked and got people, you know, promoted, you know, all the way to the White House with a big, you know, medal. And so, you know, uh, sometimes incompetence succeeded and then, you know, it was repeated. So, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, to go to the politics of assassination, you know, yeah, the some of the efforts to kill Castro were comical, but some of them were quite serious. I mean, Dick Helms was not a fool. When Dick Helms ran an assassination operation, you can be sure it was well compartmentalized. It was well thought out. It had high, you know, it had a high chance of success. It, it might take years in the making. The, the Amlash plot, which which Helms personally ran from from mid 1963 to early 1965, you know, that was a very serious plot. They had photographs. They had a you know high powered rifle. So anyway. That was one thing that Nixon and Helms had on each other and had to keep secret was their mutual knowledge of the assassination policy. Um, well, you, you brought up uh, you brought up uh, there's Amlash and Amspell, and both yeah. of these are CIA code names for um, anti-Castro Cuban counter-revolutionary movements. Could you could you lay out a little bit about how the, how those fit into them and what Amlash and Amspell were? Yeah. So so just by way of background, at that time, all Cuban operations were, were designated by a diagraph, a two-letter combination. So AM always referred to Cuba operations. And then the different operations w- would be identified by a, a noun that was put afterwards. So AMLASH was a plot to assassinate Castro. AMSPELL was a CIA propaganda program. AMWORLD was a part of, was an assassination uh, operation. AMTHUG was the code name for Fidel Castro. So in 1963, and in, in the Kennedy years, the CIA decided that they wanted to assassinate Fidel Castro. And one of, the, one of the leading figures in this was Howard Hunt. He was a top CIA guy who was sent to, to Havana in March 1960 to assess Castro's government, which had been in power for about a year at that point. And Hunt came back with a memo for, to Alan Dulles. And it, it was a four-point plan of action. The first point of, of, of action was assassinate Fidel Castro. So Hunt was in on that from the ground level. Um, and there were all told six, at least six different, op- six different conspiracies. At least that's what the CIA's own internal investigation revealed later. Um, and one of those was run entirely uh, uh, by Dick Helms. So this story of what was going on in the Kennedy years was of intense interest to Dick Nixon for this reason. Nixon thought that he was going to run for re-election in 1972 against Teddy Kennedy. John had been killed in 1963. Bobby Kennedy had run in 1968. He had been killed. Teddy was the heir apparent. The Democrats would rally around him, and that's who Nixon would be uh, running against. So how do you deal with that? Well, you go and you smear JFK. You go for the guy's strongest point. What was Teddy's biggest selling point? He was JFK's brother. He was the heir to the martyred president. So they wanted to smear JFK, and they had two ways to smear Bay of Pigs, the failure of the Bay of Pigs operation, which was blamed on JFK, and the assassination of South Vietnamese President Diem in 1963. So when Nixon comes to office, he is immediately badgering the CIA for secret files on these two questions. And I think one of the key one of the key scenes in the book is when when Nixon calls Helms on the carpet and demands after two years of delays, demands the CIA's files on the Bay of Pigs. And, and Helms says, you know, what's this about? Why do you need it? And Nixon's, you know, beating around the bush. I need it for a negotiation. I need it because I get criticized. I need And Helms says, you know, what are you talking about? And Nixon says, and you can hear him say it clearly on the tape, he says, the who shot John Angle. 
And in the context of a demand for records about Cuba policy in the early 60s, the who shot John Engel can only be a reference to JFK's assassination. And Nixon is saying to Helms, you know, I, I, I don't believe the official story that you guys have put out. The, st- the question of who killed Kennedy was a very live issue that year. Jack Anderson had started reporting on the Castro plots in January of 1971. Uh, Jesse Curry, Dallas police chief, had come out with a book that year saying Kennedy was killed by a crossfire and a conspiracy. So, you know, the JFK issue, as always, was a live issue in the press. And so when Nixon says this to Helms, he's clearly angling for this material. You know, how was there a connection between the plots to kill Castro and the assassination of JFK and like who actually did it? Right. So this is a very live issue between them. How does Helms respond to that question? Helms responds by giving him nothing about the Bay of Pigs and only giving him material about the DM assassination. He says, oh, Mr. President, I have this file. And he hands over this raw CIA intelligence all about the DM file, which Nixon can use to say JFK sold out our ally DM and and then use that to impugn Teddy Kennedy. That's how Nixon thought. He was always on the attack to smear the other guy, right? It was slasher politics, go for his strongest point and screw him. And so that's what he wanted. He wanted he wanted ammunition to use against JFK and Teddy in 1972. But that conversation, that conversation is what comes up eight months later on June 23rd, 1972, 50 years ago today. So the burglary happened six days before. Five men are under arrest. Nixon's friend, Howard Hunt, and is on the lamb. So is Gordon Liddy. And Nixon wants the CIA to kill the FBI investigation because it's going to expose the burglars' contacts with the White House. And he wants Helms to help him, right? That's what an intelligence chief does for you. He kills investigations into things you don't want investigated. And so we hear Nixon on the tape saying to, to Haldeman, you know, call him in here and be tough, you know, and this guy, Howard Hunt, he knows way too much. And if you pull the scab off of this, it's going to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And like that phrase, the whole Bay of Pigs thing. I mean, like for someone like Nixon and, and Richard Helms, I mean, like this is inextricably linked to the Kennedy assassination. So that would be pulling the scab off. That is really what's going on here. Yes. And, 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 and that's what that's what Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, wrote. He, Nick Haldeman was the first person who proposed this theory. He said, he said, I believe that was that was Nixon's way of referring to JFK's assassination. And this tape that I just quoted you I, and, and that I found proves that Haldeman was right, that when Nixon talked about the Bay of Pigs, he had the who shot John Angle in mind. So when Haldeman, then Haldeman leaves the, the Oval Office and goes to meet with Dick Helms and he sits down and he delivers Nixon's message. And he says, if this you let this investigation go forward, it's going to it's going to go the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Dick Helms, the ultimate composed, soft-spoken gentleman, explodes in a rage and says, this doesn't have a damn thing to do with the Bay of Pigs. Him and Haldeman are like chin to chin. Helms is very pissed. And he's very pissed for a very good reason, because Nixon is blackmailing him about the assassination of the president. Right? Helms understands this threat better than anybody. He's furious. He later said that people asked him, they said, well, Dick, why was the president so upset about the Bay of Pigs? And Helms said, it was incoherent. 
later he gave some interviews and he said this was a very nasty threat. And it was. He was blackmailing him over JFK's assassination. And Helms goes along. He goes, he sends his deputy, Dick Walters, General Vernon Walters, over to the FBI to meet with Patrick Ray, the acting director of the FBI, who has succeeded J. Edgar Hoover, who just died. And Walters delivers the message, taper off the investigation. That's an exact quote, taper off the investigation. And so they do. They, 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 they stop asking questions of a bunch of CIA people who they want to talk to. But they come back a little bit later and, and, they, and, and Gray still wants to keep investigating. And so he asked the CIA guys to put it in writing that, that they can't go into this. And that's where Helms draws the line. Right. Helms, much too savvy, a bureaucrat. He might say that in a meeting, but he's not going to put it on a piece of paper and commit himself to that. And he just says, you know, Mr. Gray, you do whatever you want to do. And so at that point, Gray's investigation continues and and they figure out very early on that Howard Hunt is the guy they want. And and he's eventually indicted and, and, and brought in. But Helms cooperates with the initial Watergate cover up through the summer of 72. And then he starts to back away and Nixon knows that he can't trust him and they can't trust each other. I mean, after the after bringing up the whole Bay of Pigs, after bringing up JFK's assassination and Helms was very, you know, suspicious and hostile to Nixon and the feeling was mutual. Six months later, Nixon fires him. All right, I guess like at this point, I just got to ask you uh, straight out. And I understand that you know you're you're a journalist. You have to be very careful about these things. But like, what what is what is your best read on the CIA's involvement with the Kennedy assassination? Well, I'll put it this way: the preponderance of evidence shows, and the evidence has grown stronger over the years, that the president was killed by his enemies. That there was a sophisticated operation, false flag operation to assassinate the president and blame it on Cuba. Now, CIA personnel, I believe, were involved in that. And if you wanted to talk about who are the likeliest suspects, you know, we could do that. That doesn't mean it was a CIA operation. After all, right, an assassination is a kinetic attack, right? The CIA, they're covert operators. I mean, yes, they know how to kill people, but a kinetic attack is something else that you might assign to a military person because they're the people who know how to do kinetic attacks best. So I think that there was probably joint involvement of people, uh, you know, in the military and in the CIA as to whose plot it was. You know, I think it was a high level national security patriotic conspiracy whose participants cannot be identified yet. Well, okay. Just like right, let's 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 zoom out for a little bit because okay. I want to talk about like the, the the title of the book Scorpions Dance and you know like it's about like this sort of like the the world of um, intelligence that existed and this was really kind of a a spook heyday you know I mean this is in 1972 uh, Cy Hirsch reports on chaos the CIA's domestic program and Watergate is the well, most well known of these but it's I guess like you, you sketch out it, there's, it's, it's, it's just, it's one node in a much larger ecosystem of intelligence and politics that happened to be folded into a kind of partisan drama regarding uh, the Republicans and the White House. But like, could you just talk a little bit about just the, like the overall, the overarching like nature of just how far reaching like the CIA was in their heyday in terms of these, all these numerous fucking, uh, sorry, these numerous 
um, programs that they were that they had their hands in all over the world and in America. Well, you have to understand that the CIA is founded in 1947 amid these intense fears of the of the Soviet Union that World War III might break out at any minute, you know, and Harry Truman doesn't want to create the CIA. And in fact, the first time he had the chance to do it, he turned it down and he he didn't like the idea of a peacetime intelligence agency because he didn't want an, an American Gestapo. He, he later changed his mind and signed the 1947 National Security Act, which gave the CIA this incredible level of impunity, which is basically a license to kill and steal. And with a kind of cultural consensus behind it, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, go do whatever you need to do. And we don't want to talk about it because that's the only way we can prevail in this world. You know, uh, we have to fight fire with fire. You know, so for 15 years, the CIA kind of gets that blank check and it's literally a blank check. The CIA director has to go to one person to get his budget approved, chairman of the House of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Alan Dulles would do that, or even Dick Helms would do that. And that was it. There was no discussion of it. Whatever he wanted, he got. So that was this, you know, the CIA was glamorous. You had started having the James Bond thing. But then, you know, people were like, what about, you know, you overthrew a government in Guatemala, you overthrew a government in Iran. These stories were only just beginning to be known to Americans in the 1960s. And then you have the colossal failure of the Bay of Pigs, which, you know, Kennedy felt had been foisted on him by an agency, you know, that it was their idea and they were just assuming he was going to go along with it. And Kennedy's furious and he, he has Arthur Schlesinger write a big memo, you know, let's reorganize the CIA. So the bloom is off for the CIA by the mid 1960s and all of these things that they could just do, you know, and Jim Angleton, the chief of counterintelligence, Nixon's friend, I mean, he, he was totally unknown and totally out of control. So he, he's in on the ground floor of the creation of the MK Ultra uh, mind control experiments. And so is Helms in the early 1950s. Uh, Angleton starts the surveillance of Americans' uh, foreign mail without permit. I mean, he gets permission of the, of the postmaster general. He doesn't get permission from the president. You know, the CIA story, oh, we're just acting at the president's behest. They acted all the time on their own because they just felt like doing it and, it and it magnified their power. So all of these things are proliferating. And so Watergate is like the first time that the rock was picked up and people saw kind of the criminal underworld milieu of covert action. And the thing that people forget about the Watergate scandal is, is that it, it evolves, it morphs, thanks to Seymour Hersh, uh, who reports on Angleton's mail surveillance program. It morphs into the CIA scandal. The abuses of power were not just limited to Richard Nixon's White House. There were a lot of abuses of power over there in the Langley headquarters. And so that leads to the church committee and the unmasking of all these operations. The first serious look at the CIA and Americans really learned, you know, what it meant to support a clandestine service, what had been doing, been done in their name, assassination, mind control experiments, spying on Americans, you know. People were shocked and horrified. I mean, now we're much more jaded and we, we assume or expect it. But at that time, Americans were shocked at what the CIA had done. Well, you, you brought him up. I mean, he, uh, James Jesus Angleton is a character that we, we've sort of mentioned obliquely on the show before. He's a, a, a real vampire in American history. Uh, could you just give our listeners some background on, on like who, who, who James Jesus Angleton really was and like how he got such a notorious or infamous reputation as a kind of a, a spy master and in, involved in some of the most <laughs> evil things in the agency's history? 
Yeah. So Angleton was a, a fascinating character to write about in The Ghost for all of those reasons that you're talking about. Um, he was friends with Dick Helms. Um, they had both been in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Angleton came from an interesting background, a kind of nouveau riche background. His father was a self-made millionaire who, who rose in the ranks of the National Cash Register Company, which was a big multinational company in the, in the 20s and 30s. Angleton grew up in Rome. Uh, his father was close to the fascist government there in the, in the 1930s. He went to Yale. Um, and he was a very worldly guy at a very young age, um, which was striking. And, and, and one reason why people gravitated to him for all of his flaws, he was, he was kind of intellectually charismatic. And, uh, he, uh, is in the OSS during, uh, World War II, where he's assigned to Rome, a city he knows very well and where he's totally plugged into the elite. Um, and so he starts working with Alan Dulles at the end of the war. Um, and then uh, hangs around U.S. intelligence. And when the CIA is created in 1947, he, like Dick Helms, is in on the ground floor. Angleton then is friends with the top British intelligence official in Washington, Kim Philby. And Kim Philby and Jim Angleton were fast friends. They had met in England during the war and reunited in, in Washington uh, in 1949 and 1950. Kim Philby, of course, was a Soviet spy. And so he took his poor friend, Jim Angleton, to the cleaners. They talked about all sorts of covert operations, and Philby would immediately pass this on to the KGB in Moscow. This had a big effect on Angleton's personality, made him very paranoid and very concerned about Soviet penetration. So he gets himself appointed to be the chief of counterintelligence at the CIA. What is counterintelligence? Counterintelligence is the defensive aspect of intelligence work. You know, espionage is where you go out and steal the other guy's secrets, okay? Counterintelligence is where you're trying to prevent the other guy from doing that to you. And so Angleton devotes his life to searching for Soviet moles within the CIA. And it eventually drives him crazy, probably because there wasn't one. But along the way, he amasses incredible power, develops an extensive relationship with the Mossad in Israel helps Israel steal the technology for the atomic bomb, helps develop the mind control experiments, a guy who's really kind of totally out of control and finally is kind of brought down by rivals within the agency because his, his influence is so destructive on the organization. But a fascinating character and, you know, quite a lethal one, a, a dangerous um, man. You mentioned like he was he was consumed because of his relationship with Kim Philby. He was consumed by this uh, this perpetual... Uh, sort of like a like a, a witch finder general to find Soviet moles everywhere in the CIA yes, and the yeah. United States government, of which there really weren't any. However, like, what do you think accounts for that as opposed to MI6, in which there were many? Well, th th this is what this is what everybody in the CIA said was, you know, MI6 had been penetrated by Philby and others, and they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen. That's that's why Helms kept Angleton on despite a lot of misgivings, because he said. Well, at least we've never been penetrated, you know, uh, and he, he sort of trusted Angleton to do the job. The problem was that Angleton was acting on the flimsiest of evidence. Like, so this one Soviet defector said, oh, yeah, I think I knew I knew who the mole in the CIA was. And his name began with K. Angleton went through CIA personnel files, called in every officer whose name last name began with K, questioned them, found something to suspect in all of them and ended their careers 
on <laughs> just everyone with the last name K. Yeah. Yeah. And so like talk about wow, guys, this is like the trial, Joseph K. Jesus. It, it that's exactly what it's like. It it was straight out of Kafka. And eventually, you know, Angleton was searching all and he had he had files after he was fired. They went through the, the CIA went through the files and they, he had named 40 names. He had 40 suspects for the mole. And the CIA, another CIA officer reinvestigated all of those names. And he said there was not compelling evidence against any one of them. It was it was a figment of his imagination. You know, by the late 1960s, the guy is pounding the martinis. I'm not talking three martini lunch. I'm talking five martini lunch. That was the norm for Angleton. And 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 for a lot of people, very, very well well lubricated gentlemen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, if you're looking for a mole, you got to be loose. That's exactly right. And and Angleton, he, Angleton was he was an interesting character because he was an intellectual, and so he's looking for grand patterns. And he's you know he's he's a, has a kind of creative mind. I mean, it was kind of crazy too. But so yeah, so we thought, well, I'm just you know I'm thinking outside the box, you know, by sacking all these guys whose name begins with K. I mean, like, okay, so you're like, Angleton is sort of an intellectual guy. Howard Hunt is a guy with literary pretensions. I mean, like, there's this sort of pattern here of, you said, like, the agency, like, they were the cool, sexy part of, you know, uh, the U.S. empire, as opposed to, like, the the very, you know, square military guys who, you know, you could set your clock by their haircut and things like that. But, like, yeah, like, like these guys, they had a bit of flair. They had some personality. They had these eccentricities that, that sort of drew, that drew them to this world of intelligence. Yeah, and that's why people always said, and it was true in a cultural sense, that the the CIA was was very liberal compared to the FBI or the or the military. You know, yeah, this, these were the more intellectual type uh, type of people, definitely. I guess, like, so, like, what, what I'm thinking, like, about all this is, like, so you have all these guys, like Angleton, Helms, uh, like the 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 OGs, the originators, the guys who sort of like were. Uh, sort of sired out of the OSS and like came through in like the cauldron of World War II, um, looking at a, a war that came about as close to destroying humanity as anything in human history. And then after that, the specter of uh, nuclear warfare even have a green greater potential to destroy humanity. So you say like they, I mean, sure, like in their own minds, they all believed that they could justify anything they were doing because it like under the rubric of preventing another world war. And you know, uh, countering yeah. the dominance of the Soviet Union, right. and this anything could be justified personally or politically by the threat of communism and this like the the, the greater game of the Cold War. However, it, like as with Angleton, like it, it it all this stuff bleeds over into their personal psychology and their personal will to power, and national interest often gets confused with personal interests. And I'm wondering how the the sacred nature of secrets in this world and the way secrets are managed and kept. Like, how do you see that? Like, I, I, I view it just sort of as a way in which the borders between what is national interest and what is the personal or institutional interest of an, the agency like the CIA and the people who work for it become obscured and protected. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's, there's some striking examples of that. I mean, Dick Helms was not a dumb man. Um, and, he knew what all of his analysts in the, in the, in the directorate of intelligence were telling him about the war in Vietnam. You know, the directorate of intelligence, that's not the dirty trick side of the organization. It's like a high powered university. It's like, you know, scholars, area experts in all sorts of topics. And so they assign the Vietnamese and the Asia people to study the problem. Are we winning the war? 
who's winning the war, how many casualties are there, like just figure out what's going on. And the CIA is very pessimistic from 1963 on, you know, uh, saying we're not winning the war. We're not going to win the war. Um, and this this eventually floats up to to, to Helms. And he, he asks uh, one of his analysts to say, you know, what would be the result if we just pulled out, if we just were no longer involved in this war? And he gets this very thoughtful 30-page report, which we now have, which says, you know, yeah, it would certainly change the region, uh, but, you know, in the long term, wouldn't really affect U.S. interests very much. Helms, for Helms, this document, he's like tiptoeing around like he cannot, he's frightened to show it to anybody. And he finally takes it to Johnson. Of course, he only tells this story many years later to make himself look good. But he, 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 he takes the, the memo to Johnson and he gives it to him. And it's like, if this leaks out, it would, been, it would have been like front page in all the papers because, you know, three successive administrations have been saying, you know, we're winning the war. And if we don't, all hell will break loose. You know, the Soviet Union will conquer the world. And it just wasn't true. And Helms knew it wasn't true. He gives the memo to Johnson in 19, late 1968. And um, Johnson never says anything to him about it. And Helms drops it. Then Nixon comes in, the ne- you know, within a couple of months. Nixon and Kissinger want to escalate the war. They don't want to end it. And, and Helms never passes along this memo. And Helms knows that, the, that they're not going to win the war. But he tells Nixon, he supports Nixon to the hill. Why? Because it kept him as CIA director. And that was Dick Helms' greatest dream in life, was to be CIA director for as long as possible. And so he totally sacrificed his, the national interest for his personal interest and secrecy enabled him to do it. Well, I mean, and then so his dream, his lifelong dream is to be director of the CIA. But of course, Watergate and all this is proves to be his undoing. Like, how do you see like like how do you see like the, the, the sort of parallels and contrasts between Richard Nixon and Richard Helms? How do you think that plays into their sort of mutual undoing? What, what happened to Helms? Well, and, and like what, what led up to his perjury conviction? So, 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 so if you think of Helms and Nixon have managed to forge this working relationship um, over the course of, of, of Nixon's first term. Helms has backed Nixon on expanding the war. He's backed Nixon on expanding domestic surveillance. He's done him the personal favor of providing a, a dirty trickster like Howard Hunt. Things are going swimmingly. And then the burglars get arrested. Nixon threatens Helms. Helms does not like that. And the interests of the two men drift apart. And so at that point, Helms is just protecting his agency. He's not protecting Nixon anymore. And Nixon fires him. Helms extracts a favor in exchange, an appointment to be ambassador to Iran. And then, but here's where the Watergate scandal begins to evolve into the CIA scandal. In, in his last, in his interview for to, to be ambassador to Iran, Helms is asked about CIA in Chile, which the CIA had been very active there. And Helms had, in fact, presided over the assassination of a Chilean general who was thought to impede U.S. policy there, a nasty piece of work that happened in 1970. And Helms lies, and he's under oath. He's in open session, and he says, we didn't have any operations in Chile. We weren't trying to overthrow the government of Chile. We had nothing to do with that. Pro forma denials, CIA directors do them all the time. Well, when Watergate starts to blow up and people are like, wait a second, you were helping Howard Hunt with the Daniel Ellsberg thing and the burglary. And people just start asking more questions like, what's going on with the CIA? And, and then uh, Nixon is forced to resign and the Watergate investigation ends and the CIA's kind of, you know, made it escaped 
clean. But then Seymour Hersh breaks his big story at the end of 1974 about the CIA domestic spying. New York Times plays this story really big. And then that leads to the exposure of the assassination plots against Castro. And all of a sudden, the CIA is, you know, they've been lying to Congress about the Kennedy assassination. They've been lying about assassination. All of a sudden, all this trust that is built up over the first 25 years, we're the good guys, you know, all of that, you know, Vietnam, the government's lack of credibility is eating away at the government's credibility just corrosively. And nobody believes the CIA and the government anymore. And so that's when Congress launches this investigation. And all of a sudden, Dick Helms, the CIA, in self-preservation, hands over to the Justice Department and says, well, Mr. Helms's testimony here might not have been exactly accurate. And the Justice Department in this post-Watergate era of like, Let's clean up the government. Good riddance to Nixon. We're going to do business differently now. You know, Watergate babies in Congress, you know, and a total transformation of attitude uh, from five years before. And so the Justice Department decides, look, we can't have CIA directors lying to Congress. I mean, our system doesn't work unless the different branches of government can hold each other accountable. And so they decide to charge Helms. Helms is you know, thinks he's totally right and he can lie whenever he wants. But he's got this very nasty story that they're on to about the assassination of General Schneider in Chile in October 1970, an operation directed by Dick Helms. And so he has to plead guilty. So from that burglary, both men fall. You know, Nixon has to resign two years later and five years later, Helms has to plead guilty to a crime, the only CIA director ever convicted of a crime. So Watergate led to the downfall of both men. I mean, there, I mean, he didn't do any jail time for this. I mean, like when the Nixon was pardoned, no, you know, it led, to the, it led to their embarrassment. But you know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it, it was, it's it like was a Watergate slap on the like, wrist. It, Watergate, like it, it, it stands in because it's the crime that we all know of that you know a, a lawless president and then like in, in, in your story as well, also like a, a lawless agency, a lawless central intelligence agency. But like, it's the most minor crime out of all of the associated crimes that surround it be it, you know, the uh, uh, global assassination program, the overthrow of democracies, uh, the Bay of Pigs, uh, the expansion of the war in Vietnam to Laos and Cambodia. I mean, like, there are, like, all of, like, the, the truly, like, true atrocities that surround it. The fucked up burglary is, like, the, the most minor one. Like, but Pretty it's the much. one that has the most outsized uh, purchase on the American uh, sort of mythology. Well, you know, thanks to Hollywood and Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, they they defined the story in the imagination. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a palatable story. Us journalists, you know, we love it. We know oh, the heroic, you know, reporters, shoe leather reporting and all of that. And, um, you know, they did a good job in, on that aspect of the story. But, you know, they really didn't know what was going on. And one reason why is because, you know, the Congress, they really don't want to know what the CIA was doing. I mean, if you accept the need of a clandestine service, then you're pretty much accepting the need that they're going to lie to you in order to hide what they're doing. And so, you know, the idea of accountability in a clandestine service, it's sort of a contradiction in terms. And, you know, nobody nobody really wants to, wants to hear about it. I've been interested in the reaction of my book is when I say, you know, the CIA, the hidden hand of, of, of the CIA is the untold story of Watergate. Nobody argues with me. It's it's perfectly evident if you if, if if you look at the if you look at the record, 
you know, n- nobody would dispute it. All right, I'm going to ask you a question now that uh, you know you may not give be able to give a satisfactory answer to, or your answer may not satisfy our listeners. But this, right. as relates to an idea in the the episode we did on Watergate, uh, I'll, I'll be as ginger here as possible. An idea we've entertained on the show before that the the real purpose of Watergate was essentially a kind of silent coup against the Nixon administration by the Joint Chiefs and the intelligence community, i.e. because him and Kissinger had taken American foreign policy sort of like rogue and on their own to China and various other things. Like, I mean, look, I, I don't know, like, so I guess I'm just asking, what do you what do you make of the idea that like what was really going on here was a way to remove Nixon from power? Well, I mean, you know, I'd say it's possible. The Joint Chiefs were, you know, suspicious of the opening to China. They felt strategic decisions were being made without them. You know, but I don't think that Dick Helms was not out to overthrow Dick Nixon. Helms worked very hard to create a good relationship, and he would have been perfectly happy to have Nixon serve out his second term because Helms would have been CIA director for four more years. So, you know, I don't see the CIA sabotaging Nixon. The Joint Chiefs, they had more of a vested interest in it. The problem with the Joint Chiefs, from an, from my point of view, from an analytical point of view, is, okay, who are the participants in the conspiracy? And so, you know, people can theorize a lot about these things and do and do that. But like, if if I theorize about the Kennedy administration and I say Kennedy assassination and I say these CIA officers were involved, I mean, I'll tell you three or four names and I'll tell you what they were doing and how it fit into the ambush of the president on November 22nd. I don't see a causal chain of events or network of people acting against Nixon in that same way. So maybe it's there, but I don't see the, I don't see the proof, the evidence of it. Okay. So just like uh, to, to take this up to the present day, um, like as someone who like who 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 has covered the sort of the, the this world of intelligence and how it interacts with uh, d- domestic politics, uh, you know, global spycraft and assassination, post church committee, there's this like you know like the CIA has gone undergone like a number of rebrands even in just the last twenty years. I mean, like they've undergone a rebrand after the Iraq War intelligence debacle. They've tried to change their image over and over again. So like. But what is your like? What is what is your assessment of the role of the CIA as it currently exists in the American government versus the way they were behaving in the seventies at the height of the Nixon administration? I mean, I think it's pretty similar structurally. The CIA is an extremely important power center within the U.S. government. It's one of the big six intelligence agencies. If you take the big six intelligence agencies, which are CIA, NSA, FBI. NRO, National Reconnaissance Organization, and NGA, National Geospatial Agency, those six agencies have a combined budget of about $50 billion, okay? And they have a combined workforce of about 50,000 people, okay? It's, and these are some of the smartest, most technologically capable people in the government. They are a power sector in the U.S. government. And, you know, they, their, their, their credibility in the political sphere has been vastly diminished, especially by President Trump, uh, who has attacked them as the deep state. And the, the, the intelligence community, the CIA, they've lost a lot of cachet um, over the years because of their many debacles from Iran-Contra to the war on terror to the torture regime and all that. But, you know, they remain strong. They, you know, I think that, I think of the, uh, the impeachment of, 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 of Trump over the Ukraine power play when he put the arm on Zelensky. I mean, that was, I see that as a CIA project, 
um, you know, the whistleblower was from the CIA. And that was, you know, their best shot at getting rid of a guy who they regard as a threat to U.S. national security. It didn't work because their invocations of national security have no purchase with Republican senators. People say that that's not a matter of national security, that the president did that. That's just politics. And so, you know, they don't have the credibility to prevail in the way that they might have, say, after 9-11, when they were able to, you know, impose an agenda secretly on on, on, on on the national security sector. So CIA is still very strong. You know, ironically, the CIA takes a big hit in Watergate and takes a big hit in the mid-1970s. A lot of these, you know, dubious activities are exposed. But, you know, they recovered, you know, uh, with Reagan. They got their budgets back. They got their authority back. And then after 9-11, same thing. They got budget and authority. So the CIA has survived many hits and, you know, is still very strong in the U.S. government, no question. Uh, Matt and Felix, let me can open up to you guys. Do you have any uh, questions for Jefferson or comments on uh, our discussion it, so does far? Does that make sense to you in terms of, uh, you know, like what's going on today? I mean, you know, I see CIA leadership is hostile to Trump. They, they think he's in bed with foreigners. They might have overstated that probably overstated Trump's competence in cutting deals with foreign intelligence agencies, but there was some smoke there. But the thing I wonder about is, you know, there's pro-Trump people at the CIA and Trump gets back in, he could get control of the CIA instead of having a hostile relationship with him. He might have a good relationship with him and then we'd really be in trouble. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I, I do have like a little bit of a question that maybe it dovetails a bit with that. Uh, on our previous episode, we were kind of talking about future outcomes in American politics. Yeah. And, you know, everyone loves these very fantastical scenarios. Uh, oh, a second American civil war, apocalypse, nuclear fallout, all that type of shit. Uh-huh. But, you know, the most the thing we feel most comfortable predicting uh, is, you know, a form of super federalism that the federal government is less and less important, less and less powerful. The states sort of run their own foreign policy, depending on their size and their economy. The great American divorce. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we, if we go in that direction, which it right. seems we kind of are. Right. What, what do you see becoming of the CIA? Do you see it becoming well, like kind of its own actor? You know, that that's a very good question. I, you know, I don't, I don't think we know. I mean, you do see the country sort of seceding into a red league and a blue league, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and, and that might take, you know, we might have devolution in that type of way. Ding, ding, ding. There's, there's the word for the week or the word of the month on Chapa, de-evolution. Yeah. But, but, you know, the question of national defense and standing armies and who does that, you know, who do those forces represent? And, you know, those forces are being drawn into the political struggle. You know, they're trying to avoid it, but, you know, they may be drawn into it and, and, and forced, you know, or decide to become the arbiter of political disputes, you know. So, you know, I don't know. I would say another thing uh, that I've taken from uh, Ed Snowden and Bart Gelman is um, this idea of uh, uh, turnkey autocracy. You know, you have this very powerful surveillance apparatus. You know, I think Trump's charges that that it engaged in spying on him were overblown and not true, but they could have. It -hmm. is a very powerful apparatus. It can it can pick up on any one of us. You know, if the National Security Agency went to Google tomorrow and said, 
we want to see Morley's email, you know, they'd have it within the hour, right? Legal. Yeah. They would have it legally within the hour. So, and yeah, the one telecom that ever resisted that got ripped apart. Yeah, West right. communications. No. And so, and so, and so, you know, if Trump's in power and has a cooperative CIA apparatus, he'll turn that key. You know, and I, I, I don't think people have thought about that. I, I, I don't even think people at the CIA have thought about that because they assume that they're going to get rid of this guy and they're going to win the power struggle against him. I'm not sure they are. I mean, yeah, it's 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 weird kind of to talk about uh, precedents and all that, because as always with the CIA, on one hand, you do have like, you know, the horrible thing is already happening, right? Like everything that they've already done. And I mean, now specifically, I'm kind of thinking about Assange, but it's always it's always the next guys doing something horrible with them and going uh, don't elect the next guy because he's he's going to have this weapon that I'm building for him. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it's the contradiction of a clandestine service in an open society. And, you know, I don't think it's solvable. And so, I mean, most likely the divisions within the institution will reflect the divisions in the in the larger society. Um, you know, and the CIA has changed over the years, you know, from the first director through Bill Casey. Casey was the last CIA director to have an well uh, to have an Ivy League degree, and since then, the, you know, the directors are coming from the they're coming from the Catholic schools. They're coming from Georgetown, and the proportion of say Mormons in the CIA and Greek Americans, you know, cohesive small cohesive ethnic networks is very is very strong. And so, you know, where the CIA will go. We don't know. You know, people, all the CIA guys, Brennan and all those guys, they tell the story of how offended they were on the first day of, you know, when Trump came and gave the campaign speech in front of their wall and all of that. And and they were all offended and, and blasted him for that. But I've talked to people who were at that meeting and they said there were a lot of people in there cheering Trump, you know, and there are a lot. There are a lot of pro-Trump people in the CIA. So, you know, control of the CIA in this in this, you know, when this you have this authoritarian movement trying to take over the over the government i think that's a common issue that's i yeah that is an interesting point because it's like you would figure that a lot of people in the cia like special activities division or the guys still running torture you have a lot of like ex-military former rangers or seals and you know gun to my head i'm saying like 70 80 percent trump voters but then you have the democratic class of 2018 all the all the all the um Abby Spanbergers and <laughs> you know they're they're leaning they're leaning blue. Right. I mean maybe I you know uh loath as we are to predict any optimistic outcome, maybe they're so so crippled by the stupid culture war that the rest of us are preoccupied with that they, they can't unleash on everyone else. Well, you know, this the CIA is a very canny organization which has a way of adjusting itself to you know political ignoring political realities because you know like they say you know presidents come and go and 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 and, and we don't you know they can ask outlast any president that's how they feel that's what that's in their organizational dna liberal conservative it's like whatever the this president screws up we'll be around after he's gone and so you know but that may not be true you know one thing that's happened because of all these failures is they don't have a lot of credibility and they have less political capital to, to call on and, and fewer defenders in Washington. You know, 
Dick Helms could count on the support of 99 senators from, you know, his buddy Eugene McCarthy on the left to his buddy Dick Russell uh, on the right. No CIA director has anything like that. Now a CIA director is much more of, you know, a factional power player in a very fractionalized situation. Uh, Jefferson, maybe you'll, uh, you'll just p- permit this uh, slight digression on my sure. half here, but I'm, I'm, I bring it up only because I watched all three movies on the airplane back from France the other day. Uh, <laughs> have you seen the Jason Bourne movies of the uh, sort of like aughts, the, the aught era of the 21st century? Uh, I saw one of them. I forget which one. Okay. Okay, well, I mean, I, I bring it up because I was interested watching these movies, and they're, they're all very fun, but, like, the first one came out in 2002, and it was, like, you know, uh, you know, and the movies, like, they all deal with it based on the Robert Ludlum books, deal with, like, you know, basically, like, uh, brainwashed wetworks agents and this kind of global security surveillance panopticon, but the first movie is directed by a guy named Doug Lyman, who's mostly does, and I, I, I don't use this term derogate in, you know, pejoratively at all, mostly makes kind of fun, dumb guy movies, mm-hmm. and the first one is mostly a fun, dumb guy movie. The second two are directed by Paul Greengrass, who directed United 93, and he brings this real kind of, like, verite gritty realism to it and i'm just like you know but the, the second one comes out in 2004 and there's a line in it where an analyst says well it's not a slam dunk clearly like referencing the the bush iraq intelligence <laughs> things and like they, they get much darker and grittier yes. and like more realistic and more highly praised and it's like a very uh, on the surface I, I, w- I would say like a very nasty view of the central intelligence agency because there's all these like evil guys there doing these secret assassination programs and you know killing innocent people but the whole plot of the second and third movies are about Jason Bourne trying to basically apologize for all the people he killed as a brainwashed assassin for the CIA and I just can't help but like and it's so much about like uh, it's having about how the good people in the CIA need to take it back from the bad people that are doing domestic surveillance and assassination and I'm just wondering like it's just like it, just in terms of like how the CIA outlasts and mutates after each dramatic atrocity and fuck up that, that becomes public fodder. I mean, I'm not saying the Jason Bourne movies are a CIA intelligence operation in themselves. I don't have evidence of that. I'm merely suggesting it. You're the journalist. Maybe you could look well, into no, that. No, I mean, but, it, it, Hollywood is good at picking up on what resonates in the culture and, and you know, and what's, what's going to pull people in and, 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 and grip them. And so th- this very cynical view of the CIA I mean, really is the norm in, in, in movies, you know, th- think of, uh, in the line of fire, you know, the Clint Eastwood movie, you know, oh, John Malkovich is the former, you know, the yeah, guy, the, wrote, right, the guy who's know, like, yeah, the assassin, who's renegade going, CIA uh, assassin, yeah. you know, and it's like, and this speaks to, well, yeah, people think, oh, you know, yeah, that's what they're all about. They, you know, they're out of control. And so those movies do echo, I think, you know, a, a kind of a, a consensus that, that is, that, that has a very, some would say cynical, others would say realistic view of, you know, what these things are about. They, but they also, you know, they also glamorize it uh, totally. And, and, well, and, 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 and it's a cynical view, but like that, I think, it, I think like the, if, if there is an ideological element to here, I think it works so convincingly because it presents this cynical view, but then the triumph of the movie is about the good people in the CIA, not just being like, we shouldn't have a CIA. It's right. just no, that no, like no. Joan Allen and Julia Stiles need to be in charge of it. Yeah, no, put, no. The, put the ladies in charge. Right. Yeah. The benevolent American. Yeah. Put the ladies in charge. That's, that's definitely a CIA um, cultural offensive. Now, you know, women are hold like, you know, six of the top 10 positions uh, uh, in the agency. And, and, and they spend a lot of time, uh, you know, promoting and sort of pink washing this. So that's, that's the latest cultural offensive for the CIA. I, uh, 
I, I'm assuming that you saw the uh, CIA ad they did where they show a uh, an analyst and she talks about overcoming ADHD and imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I saw a uh, they had a, a, a panel the other day at uh, NSA on enhancing neurodiversity in the NSA workforce. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that's what MK Ultra was for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. It's this very instrumental view of science, you know, which is, well, you know, you use whatever tools you have. Um, maybe, you know, autistic people can have these impressive powers of perception and mental organization. So maybe you do want some of them around. They, they can see some patterns that nobody else would see, you know, like they are they as an organization, they are at the cutting edge of, you know, like understanding how to manipulate behavior. That's that's their business. Uh, Jefferson Morley, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, the book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. Uh, in stores now. And if people would like to uh, read more of your stuff or find out more, where should they? Uh, do you have a website or where should they go to find more Jefferson Morley? They should visit my, my, uh, my website, JFK Facts, which is about uh, the JFK assassination, but also a lot about Watergate now because of, because of those connections. Uh, and I'm on twitter at jefferson morley um and uh you can buy my books at um jeffersonmorleybooks.com i should say too that scorpion's dance is available in an excellent audiobook if that's how you like to consume your espionage um and also as a kindle so you can get it in any format once again the author jefferson morley the book scorpion's dance jefferson thank you so much for spending some time with us thanks for having me guys take care thank All you right. cheers yep. bye-bye All right.